0: Welcome to the 600th episode of the Modern Art Notes Podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Anna Sukalarkis. Before we get to this week's show, a big thank you for continuing to download and listen to the program each week. Your interest allows me to have wonderful conversations each and every week to learn and to share some of the best work being done across the visual arts field. Anna Sukalarkis is in several exhibitions, actually, a whole bunch of exhibitions all around the United States. A solo presentation of her The Native Guide Project is at the Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University through July 9th. Titled The Native Guide Project Columbus, it includes bold-faced phrases such as, I like how you see Native Americans as your intellectual equal, both within and around the Wexner's famed Peter Eisenman-designed building. In a departure from our usual practice for curatorial credits, see the show page at manpodcast.com. Suclaracus is also included in the second edition of the St. Louis Triennial Counterpublic, which weaves contemporary art into the fabric of St. Louis. It's on view through July 15th. At the Scottsdale Museum of Art through August 27th, Suclaracus is in Language in Times of Miscommunication, an exhibition of artworks that use language to critically examine the complexities of social reality. And next month, the Museum of Contemporary Art Denver will present a survey of Suclorakis' indigenous Absurdities sculptures, which center indigenous knowledge and systems as ways of teaching starting points. That show will be on view from June 14th to September 10th. Suclorakis, who is Navajo, Creek, and Greek, often challenges and stretches the aesthetic and conceptual boundaries of Native art, often with humor, and as you'll hear in this week's show, even sarcasm. On the second segment, Michael Hartman and Historical Imaginary at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College. First, Anna Sukalarkis. after the break. On May 6th at the Museum of Contemporary Art Chicago, Barack Adé Soleil premieres a new work, Shift, that amplifies the presence of Black neurodiverse and disabled bodies by physically occupying the museum's spaces. In this live performance, a promenade of disability community members traverse inaccessible staircases, recalibrating the flow of activity within the museum and challenging simplistic depictions of Black disabled bodies in real time. Plan your visit to see SHIFT and learn more at mcachicago.org backslash frictions. On view through July 9th, 2023 at the Getty Center, the captivating new exhibition Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems in Dialogue brings together for the first time a selection of work by two of today's most influential photographers. Dawood Bay and Carrie Mae Weems have been friends and colleagues since they met in Harlem in 1977. Both grapple with issues of race, class, and representation, making art grounded in the experiences of Black Americans while also speaking to the broader human condition. The exhibition features the artist's early pictures, followed by their ambitious, groundbreaking explorations of the medium. Local community partners will also host programs inspired by the exhibition, introducing the artist's work and teaching photography techniques to new generations in Culver City, South LA, Downtown LA, and Venice Beach. Learn more, plan your visit, and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. Conceptual artist Celia Alvarez-Munoz implements a playful, witty style often characterized by her use of bilingual puns and mistranslations in both text and image. Now through August 2023, explore Munoz's first career retrospective at the recently expanded Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, La Jolla campus. Spanning 40 years and featuring over 35 artworks, visitors will experience large-scale immersive installations, photographic series, and book projects that draw inspiration from Munoz's lived experience as a resident of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. Plan your visit to the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego by going to mcasd.org. And we're back. Anna Sukalarkis, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: What is your Native Guide project?
1: The Native Guide project is a body of work that I started when I was an artist-in-residence at Colorado College during the 2019-2020 academic year. As an artist-in-residence, my studio is in the museum at Colorado College, and I had a lot of interaction with the museum staff and a lot of conversations about what, you know, their role in the museum, what their hopes were in terms of interactions with visitors. And it really made me start thinking about the outcome that we hope for within art and, or the, the, you know, what is it that we want to get across and how can you help guide somebody to the behavior that they hope that you hope for? And that's, that's where the idea of the native guide project came from. And I decided that I wanted to throw kind of small pieces of text out into the world And I had done text work before, but nothing quite like this, and definitely not on the scale of of the Native Guide project. And so with some nice funding from the museum, I decided to put text pieces on billboards throughout Colorado Springs. And the text was actually, you know, when I was thinking about what was happening in the world, kind of this new... Movement of Black Lives Matter, of just kind of, you know, the Land Back movement of Standing Rock had happened in North Dakota, thinking about interactions between specifically people of color and those that aren't. How do we create a common kind of space? And how can I put my words out in the world that could help guide that behavior? And that's where the idea initially kind of came from, was to create text to help guide behavior. I had taught in elementary school kind of randomly a long time ago, and I learned about this teaching theory called responsive classroom. And it's, it's pretty straightforward, you know, positive reinforcement with children. The idea that if you, you know, compliment somebody who's doing something, you know, well— then another child will overhear that and they'll want to get that compliment as well. And so I started thinking about what if I put these pieces of text out in the world that that complemented good interactions with Native people. <laughs> and that was where it came from. And I know that, you know, even when I first initially wrote them, I knew that there was this snarky kind of edge to them. And I loved that idea of kind of dual meanings and dual intention, because I think I am probably, you know, pretty snarky and <laughs> kind of goofy with my words sometimes and pointed.
0: We're, we're going to get there a little later on, because <laughs> it's not it's not only in this body of work.
1: <laughs> yeah. And so that was something that I was really interested in, was kind of like highlighting that kind of duality. and And so when I wanted to put these out there I you know I definitely thought a lot about font and like what they would look like and I decided I wanted them to be kind of as minimalist as possible because I didn't want it to be tainted by anything I'm I'm really aware of the work that I do and how it's perceived not only as as a native artist but as a female artist and how people might see things if if they see it attached to a name that's you know seemingly feminine or you know and especially I I have this whole kind of weird relationship with color that I think it can complicate things for me and my work. And so I, I don't use a lot of color. And so it was fairly easily, easy to kind of decide that I was only going to do use black and white in these um, text pieces.
0: Black text on a white background.
1: Yes, black text in Helvetica. <laughs>
0: yeah, capital letters
1: fairly short sentences. And so I put them on two different billboards on major kind of places within Colorado Springs. One was in the central kind of downtown area on top of a building and then the other was on a highway leading outside of town. When I was thinking about these text pieces, I ended up coming up with let's see, 21 other pieces that were similar kind of in the vein of what they were about and kind of what they were speaking to. And I was thinking about how I wanted to put them in the world like again like I was interested in the anonymity of just people being forced to interact with these things and having these text pieces just arrive in their life whether they wanted them or not and they had to reckon with it and it wasn't necessarily something I would ever know about but they would read it and then they would move on or maybe they would think about it and so I decided to put them on social media and so I had them both on Instagram and Facebook and had business profiles created so i could push them out as ads so the idea was that i think it was for the whole month of november in 2019 november which is Native american heritage month i pushed out two to three maybe four ads a day all over the country and it's really cool with these ads you can decide who they're going to the demographic you're trying to reach And so I could decide that they were going to women between the ages of 60 and 70 who were shopping for handbags in Florida. And these would just randomly pop up in their feeds. You know, there was nothing to, they could click on them, but it would just take you to the the web, you know, their Instagram page. And it had no mention of me of what this was or anything. It just had more of these text pieces. So I like that idea that if people were interested or, Influenced by these in any way, that you know, there was nowhere to go. They they kind of had to wrestle with this idea that they've been presented with themselves. And through through the analytics of the social media platforms, I was able to see that throughout the month, there were about 35,000 people that interacted with them in some way. So clicked on them, you know, hovered on them, that type of thing. And so it was really exciting to know that that was happening. And so it was a project that I was really excited about and when opportunities came up to create different iterations of it in different in different cities
0: you mean physically you mean outside the digital sphere
1: yes outside the digital sphere but still both within kind of museum spaces and on you know in just the urban landscape
0: could you read a few of those sentences for us
1: So some of the examples of the billboards and the pieces that are on Instagram are, I really like the way you respect Native American rights. Your tone when speaking to Native American women is so respectful. You're right. Not all Native Americans have red skin. It's nice that you didn't dress as a Native American for Halloween.
0: That's the funniest one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So some of these are, I mean, they're pretty straightforward, and I, I feel like some of them are very specific about different, you know, actions that and stereotypes, and like the one I feel like that, as a native person, you hear a lot is about people that are that feel as though they have a familial connection to Native Americans in a very like tangential way, and so the one that says so very true, not all Native American grandmothers were princesses. I feel like that one speaks to a lot of Native people.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Also, Also speaks to a certain artwork in the U.S. Capitol Rotunda, it must be said. So as you noted, your projects at the Wexner in Columbus and in St. Louis use text, and they kind of marry text to specific sites. In St. Louis, for example, you've made an installation at Sugarloaf Mound, which is the sole remaining Mississippian culture platform mound. It's located along the Mississippi River about halfway between downtown St. Louis and Jefferson Barracks, which, of course, is the army post from which the United States carried out anti-Native people campaigns beginning in 1832. In Columbus, of course, in addition to kind of billboard-type spaces, you worked in and, and like, literally on (laughs) the Wexner's Peter Eisenman Building. So I'm kind of providing all of this long setup to get to a short question. Why at places as different as a wide open landscape separated from a major river by a building or, you know, at an iconic postmodern building, why in, in sites that different is using text appealing?
1: I think text is really appealing to be used in pretty much any public space. I find it gets right to the heart. It cuts through things. It's not trying to act like it doesn't know that it shouldn't be there. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, right now I have the the pieces at the Wexner and at, in St. Louis at Counter Republic, but there's also the original iteration of the Native Guide project that I did in Colorado Springs is up right now at the Scottsdale Museum of Contemporary Art in Arizona. So yeah, text is all over right now. <laughs>
0: You were trained in in grad school in sculpture. And we'll talk about some three-dimensional stuff in a moment. But, you know, text is really kind of the opposite of sculpture. I mean, it's as flat as you can get, as two-dimensional or maybe even one-dimensional as you can get. Are there affinities between text and sculpture that interest you that I haven't thought of?
1: (laughs) I I think it comes down to ideas and the concepts that I'm trying to get across. I've always known, like, pretty much since undergrad that, I I was an artist. I think that's when I accepted it. Art had always been a part of my life. My dad's an artist, and I was always w- with him in a studio working and, like, you know, always in the Native art scene growing up. And while it was something I did, I never thought of myself as, as that until really undergrad. And then once I was there, I, I realized pretty quickly that I was drawn to sculpture, that I saw the world three-dimensionally, that... I knew I wasn't a painter (laughs) and, and and photography was insanely expensive, but with sculpture, it just, it made sense. And it was easy. It was an easy language to work in. And the nice thing about kind of, I feel like coming up in the programs that I did at Dartmouth and Yale, and maybe it was even the timing, like the late, you know, mid to late nineties. And I think it was at Yale in the early 2000s that things were becoming much more interdisciplinary and it wasn't, sculpture didn't have to mean just one thing or two things, you know, it could be very versatile. And so it was natural to kind of move around within material, within ideas and concepts. And so when I started thinking about making work in this vein of like, specifically the Native Guide Project, Like, how do you get an audience to get, you know, have the reaction that you want? It made, you know, I I started thinking like, okay, how can you visualize that? Or, you know, and then I realized that I didn't want to like, I really just wanted to say it. And that's the thing for me. It wasn't about whether it's sculpture or text. It's like just kind of cutting through everything and just putting the idea out in front of people. And that if text is the way to do that, then that's okay. You know, when I was in graduate school, that was the first time I was really exposed to video. And sometimes you try to, you know, smash something into something else that doesn't make sense, you know, and you try to use a material that makes no sense for something. And I realized that I was having ideas that were better translated through the medium of video or performance. And then, you know, as I started thinking more about text and, and utilizing that, that it was getting across exactly what I wanted to do, and that it could be very minimal, that, that it didn't have to have flourishes, or, you know, something else with it. It just, it made complete sense to me.
0: You mentioned other media, you've worked in sculpture, performance, video, all kinds of things. And at the core of a lot of it, maybe almost all of it, is kind of an unusual through line. And that through line is sarcasm. <laughs> so so here's a question in 600 shows I've never asked an artist before. How did you arrive at sarcasm as a conceptual approach?
1: <laughs> I think it's just, it's just who I am. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I've always, you know, I've always been kind of the odd one out, in a lot of scenarios, like I've always felt different than other people. You know, when I growing up in Lawrence, Kansas, I was native in a predominantly white community. And then when I moved to New Mexico, and we lived in Taos, I was the Navajo within a Pueblo community, you know, and then I went, you know, away to college to the East Coast. And, you know, again, kind of this alien person in this like, bucolic space of New Hampshire. And then, you know, so it's always been kind of like that for me in different ways. And so, you know, even now here, you know, in in Boulder, Colorado, it's very odd being kind of this native brown person in Boulder. So sarcasm, I think, is a way that (laughs) I can easily connect to people because I feel like if there's some like bit of laughter or joke, then I know that. Things are okay. <laughs> like we're, <laughs> we're getting to know each other, you know. That it lets me know that that I that I'm fitting in in some way, right? Because you know that somebody's responding to you, and I am that person that tries to make people laugh. You know, I don't think I'm a comedian, but you know, I I, I get people started and get people giggling here and there, or you know. So I I think it's just a tool that I've always utilized to find my sense of place in a way and it's just can i have a show coming up at mca denver it's called indigenous absurdities and all of the titles are super sarcastic (laughs) so yeah
0: (laughs) well i'm pleased to say that i'm not only listening but i'm hearing what a native american is saying which is a sentence taken directly from one of your native guide project sentences a good example of how your sarcastic approach migrates into three dimensions as well as black text on white background is an installation you made in 2016 at the university of chicago it's an installation of i think three sculptures maybe five i guess depending on how you count things or you know if you count speakers and whatnot anyway it's titled she made for her it includes sculptures sourced from ikea remnants made into pseudo useful objects that seem to sort of reference things Native Americans use or used, and then you crowdsourced Native American women making up stories of what these objects were for and how they'd been used. And so it's a work or, or, or works full of reference to the fungibility of narrative, to the slipperiness of authorship, to the interrogation of history. F- first, did I describe that fairly?
1: Yes, that sounds Great.
0: Yeah. OK. And and secondly, I guess, how did you conceive that piece and what did you want to be sure it did other than just sit there on the floor?
1: The piece was was actually conceived when I, I was living in Washington, D.C. And I have three little kids, so we would always go to different museums and kind of, you know, kind of scoot around town. And I think they had a snow day that day or, you know, maybe they didn't have school. And so we went down to the National Museum of the American Indian down on the mall in D.C., which we would go to all the time, you know, and we went and we were walking around looking at the different exhibitions and I saw a woman leading a tour group and I thought it was interesting, not that I know every native or anything like that, but I knew most of the native tour guides that worked in the museum. And she wasn't dressed accordingly, and I had never seen her before. And I started listening to her. I was just curious what she was talking about. And she was talking about these objects that were from the 18 and kind of early 1900s. And she started describing what they were. And I realized, once I was listening to her, that she had no idea what she was talking about. (laughs) And she was just making stuff up. (laughs) And I was like, who? is this person? And who are all these people listening to her? And I just thought it was the craziest thing. So I, I kind of walked along with them for a little bit. And then and she visibly looked native. So I assume that she was native, but I don't know. You know, she was describing something that she called a breastplate. And I was like, well, actually, that's like a planes like version of a chair. <laughs> And so I asked somebody in the in the tour group and I said, you know, do do you know this woman? And the the lady was like, this is my friend. She's native. She knows what all of these objects are. And I was like, "Mm, I don't know about that, but I didn't want to (laughs) like correct or anything. I was with my little kids. And so it really just struck me this idea of this interest in Kind of native knowledge and the like not I, I just I had no idea who this woman was, and I just thought it was so fascinating. like, why would she be doing this? You know? And so I had this opportunity to kind of create the show at University of Chicago. It really made me think a lot about that. And so I started thinking about, you know, if this woman was an artist and she was making work, what would that work look like and and What would be the stories around the work? And so that's where it was all kind of conceived from was this ludicrous kind of scenario I found myself in at the National Museum of American Indian. But yeah, and so my, this is, this is my favorite part of the title. So if you take the first letter of each of the words she made for her, it's (laughs) SMFH. That's my like little inside joke.
0: so i i feel like i should have noticed that before i understand what informed and what the piece's origin was but that's still a long way to getting an object mixed with sound into a physical space in a way that is legible and pointed when you come up with a, what a work is going to be do you think to yourself oh if, you know, I, I bury my tongue in cheek and and have a little smirk out of one side of my mouth, that my audience is going to get there with me.
1: I don't necessarily think they're going to get there. Oh. I, I hope they do in some ways, but I, I think that when I have an idea of, and, you know, where it started and where it ended up, I think about, you know, the audience is going to be, you know, usually predominantly non-native, but there might be some natives coming through. And that it it can be visually compelling that there can be enough for everyone. Like I do think about that, but at the heart of it, I want it to be true to who I am and kind of what like my experiences and what I believe. And so I think, you know, when I made that work specifically, she made for her, I was definitely thinking from her perspective or what I imagined that to be and then created the sculptures out of Ikea remnants because I started thinking, well, you know, contemporary natives, you know, it's like the tradition of native peoples to source what's around them, what would would be useful in terms of materials. And as somebody living in within the Beltway of Washington, D.C., yeah, Ikea is everywhere. It's on every corner, you know, that people dump their trash and <laughs> different things like that and Craigslist. And so it was a natural way to kind of get the materials. But So, yeah, and then the audio part of it, I liked the idea of giving the pieces history because it was one thing to kind of build them and then to know where that came from for myself, but I loved the idea of bringing other, I definitely, Oh, sometimes I call myself, you know, I'm not a community artist, but I'm an artist that sources from the community. And the idea that, you know, when I texted this out to, you know, 20 friends, and they all responded with audio pieces. It was awesome. And I think it's something that I think about as well. I'm kind of all over the place in answering this question, but I like the, you know, I, I think a lot about the gallery space and the expectations that people are coming in with. And it's something I've always wrestled with ever since I was in graduate school, The idea of being Native and an artist, like to me, I'm not one or the other, like I am truly both. And with that comes baggage, you know, major baggage of what the expectations are and what people, you know, kind of assume or don't assume about about me and the work. And I think there's always this idea that I'll be educating people in some way. And I've always, t- you know, sometime I'm very straightforward and yes, I'm educating you about this or, and sometimes I'm, you know, I'll kind of hide it and be like, no, I'm just kind of effing with you. <laughs> I don't know. And so for this piece specifically, I wanted to use this experience that I had at the at NMAI to kind of feed what, what happened in Chicago.
0: <laughs> One of the things I found myself thinking about as I prepared to talk to you is about the ways in which we most commonly experience and receive sarcasm and snarkiness and kind of some of these approaches we've been talking about. And the one that kept coming to mind for me was the dialogue, if you can call it that, between a child and a parent, where when a parent goes into father-knows-best mode, shut up and do as your parents say type communication, the child's most common response, and certainly was mine, was to kind of sarcastically say something back to the parent and, you know, walk away. And how that is a discourse in which the parent enforces paternalism onto the child in, like, the most literal, familial way possible. Do you think of your use of snarkiness and sarcasm and humor as a way, mindfully, as a way of undermining a uh, very long history of American paternalism?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely, I think that's inherent in just my being. <laughs> I mean, it's always being a native person. You know, in twenty twenty three, it's something that I think about every day. My relationship to kind of the United States, the overarching force of a paternalistic society, it's something that that is a daily thought for me. Interactions with with people when I go to Target, it's it's. It's definitely there whether or not I want it to be. And I wish I didn't have to think about it, but I feel like that's just, it's just part of being a native in the U.S. right now.
0: Of course, there's, there's all kinds of paternalism at the heart of the entire American Republican project in many ways, going back to, you know, the 1770s. A standard part of your artist lecture is the introduction of Edward Curtis, and his many photographs of Native Americans traveling through Western land, and those pictures impact on you. And I think there's probably a specific Curtis about which you've spoken, but I'm not sure which it was because a lot of those Curtis titles are alike or fungible. Anyway, as, as Curtis, like so many other photographers in the Far West in the 19th and early 20th centuries, was not, you know, shy about stage management, shall we say? What in that Curtis gave you impetus or motivation?
1: During my time in undergrad, I was a double major in Native American Studies and studio art. So the entire time that I was making work, I was also learning more and more about Native American history. And I remember being in the Native American Studies library and looking through those big coffee table books of the Edward Curtis photos. And... I knew, you know, at that point that a lot of them, most of them were staged. But I also am aware that it's the first time I was really had time to kind of think about them and and kind of ingest what I was seeing in relation to the history that was going on at that time. And they were they were informative because I was seeing, you know, the history of places that I'd already been, you know, when I was younger in, you know, middle school and high school, we used to travel all over the country to powwows, where my brother and I would dance and we would compete in, you know, different dance competitions and stuff. We go to different reservations all over the place. And, and so that was how I learned of different tribes and different people. And then, as I got older, you know, now in my late teens, learning about these histories, they they definitely became part of my vocabulary at that point, and like definitely that Edward the Edward Curtis photo where there's I want to say it's a, a Cinnaboyne family or maybe a I think it was a Cinnaboyne that were pulling a travois their horse was pulling a travois behind them. I, I could see my connection to that as, like, this nomadic person. And that is what drove me to create my pers- first performance piece, which is just titled Travois.
0: In which you dragged a Travois behind you through the streets of Hanover, New Hampshire, the two kind of most humorous elements are, one, there was you, you gave yourself a license plate.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I felt that was actually... <laughs> I, it ended up being really funny, and I know that yes. lecture about it. People laugh, but it was actually a safety thing because I'd never done performance work before, and I was freaked out. I was like, oh, my God, everyone's, you know, I'm going to walk in the middle of the street, and, like, what if I get in trouble? What if the cops come and get me? I mean, being brown in a rural, you know, New England town isn't always a good thing. And so I thought, well if I use my license plate, then it kind of makes it legal that at least I'm pulling this thing through traffic.
0: <laughs> okay. But so, here, here's where I should jump in to say that you also parked in a legal parking spot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so something about all of these elements points to that you are winking at the history of native American mobility and how sometimes it was part of who people were and what they did, but within the colonial context, often migration was forced. Are there sculptures and performances into which you have made that connection and built that idea?
1: I don't, not specifically.
0: Maybe maybe the rocket ships?
1: Oh, the rocket, yes. I was thinking of forced migration, like as in Trail of Tears, but no, the rocket ship is, definitely a different type of migration. (laughs) So the rocket ship is a project that I did initially when I was in graduate school in 2002. And then I was asked to uh, create a new iteration of it for a show at NSU Art Museum last year. And it's one of my favorite pieces. (laughs) It's where I built a 12-foot fully working rocket ship out of mostly found objects, found wood. And so I read this text piece during the presentation of it where it speaks to the ideas of you know the resources of the earth running out and where people would you know at that time probably be looking at other planets to move to and when there was a time when people were actually ready to go you know there would be people that had the fancy NASA type style rocket ships And Native Americans would probably be left to kind of build our own like shoddy rocket ships that would have chains that would hook on to the larger ones. And so we would all be ready to go, have our rocket ships all packed up and decorated and ready to head out of here. But what people wouldn't know is that as the countdown was happening and as the rocket ships were all taking off, all of the Native rocket ships would have escape hatches in them. And we'd all be slipping out and putting our feet back on the ground while everybody else was on the way out of here.
0: The other part of the joke is the is how you have made the interior of the rocket ships, or at least one of the rocket ships.
1: So in the first iteration, the interior of the rocket ship was Southwest design. I think the paint color is called Indian Sunset <laughs> and has turf for the flooring and with some really nice Southwest, you know, design pillows. And then... <laughs> <laughs> In the second iteration of the rocket ships, they actually correspond to my three kids and their personalities. So I made three rocket ships and the interior of one of them is similar to the first one, like with a Southwest design. Another rocket ship is much more kind of clean and kind of minimal in response to my son and kind of the way he kind of sees things. And then The third rocket ship is full of fur and softness and you can't even actually stand up in it. You have to lay down and you're amongst kind of like those Sherpa, you know, or like um, sheepskin pillows and whatnot. And so which is very suitable for my middle daughter and her inclination to lounge.
0: (laughs) I love it. You know, I I, I, let me let me clean up. Let me let me tidy something up here before going on to the next works. I introduced that kind of mini segment by raising Curtis and Curtis's picture. And I don't want to leave listeners with the idea that the Curtis pictures led directly to or informed specifically the rocket ships. So I guess I should ask, did they?
1: No, I think that they definitely informed like the Trava piece. And I think they informed my overall practice in a lot of ways, because I feel like when you think of Native American imagery, that's. Some of the beginning are, you know, the Edward Curtis photos and the George Catlin paintings. And that's what we see in our history books and what people kind of and, and how I feel like Hollywood has kind of continued specifically, you know, within movies and everything, you know, throughout most of the 20th century. And, and it's nice to see all that changing now. But, but it definitely informed the way that I kind of knew that I was being viewed And why I wanted to push against that in all these different ways.
0: You have made a number of works, sculptures, including for use in performances, which you present in video form, uh, a number of works that join objects to the human body in ways that confine it, especially around the head, especially in ways that make it impossible to speak or at least to be heard which pointed me toward how you quite often bind things in work, both kind of like standalone sculptures that sit on a gallery floor, but also in, in in performance, you know, make it right from 2020, for example. What is the origin of that move, if you will? What is the origin of your interest in binding stuff together?
1: I don't think I was able to like verbalize it and wasn't even quite aware of where it was coming from. I think it's practice that I've used... For a long time. But it really wasn't until 2019, 2020, when I started thinking about how to physically illustrate the idea of decolonization. And I really started thinking about what makes me different than you as a na- like, what is it that makes me native? You know, yes, it's my political affiliation to a tribe and to a nation. I'm a citizen of, of the Navajo Nation. But, but what else is it? And what is it culturally? And so, I started thinking about like what what acts d- happen to me, or you know, experiences do I have in my life that that are different than yours probably? And one of them, you know, the thing that kept kind of popping up was that idea of binding and tying things together. You know, at it, you know, at the beginning of life, we're put in uh, cradle boards and, you know, tied down. And that's so different. I, I, you know, even with my own kids, I remember, you know, taking them to parks and people were like, oh my gosh, you're, you know, gonna kill your baby with it being all tied up or you're, you know, torturing it. And I kept thinking, okay, this is like, practice has been around for like millennia. I don't know about what you're doing with your baby, but... Speaking, um, (laughs) Speaking
0: of paternalism.
1: Yeah. And so there was there was that initially. And then at a young age, you learn to sit so somebody can comb your hair and brush your hair and, and put it up in a bun or a ponytail or a braid. And I noticed, you know, my kids all have really long hair. And my son specifically, you know, has hair down to his waist, you know, past his waist. And people always ask, like, how how does he sit? How, how, how do you, you know, unta- you know, detangle it and everything? And I'm like, he's been doing this since he was you know could first sit up he, he's been allowing me to brush his hair it's something that's just ingrained and learned and it's part of our culture and you know when i was young i remember my grandmother who i was predominantly raised by you know i was raised by my grandmother and my dad she would tell me that we have to brush our hair every day and put it up because that's you know connected to our mind and our ideas and so if we want to go through the day in a good way We have to be respectful of our hair and put it in a bun or else if it's all crazy, that's how we're going to go through the day and our thoughts will be kind of, you know, all over the place and, and it'll be in disarray. And so we won't have a good day. And so that's always something that has always, you know, stayed close to me. And as I've gotten older, there are just so many other ways that binding have become obvious as part of like me being Navajo Like the idea of, you know, when we make certain types of meat, you know, you bind up the intestines when you make, you know, medicine bundles and things like that. There's always this act of binding or tying things together. And so I realized that that was that action specifically was something that was very navajo and and i'm sure it reaches to a lot of indigenous people but speaking specifically to being navajo it was it, it's always been there
0: you have made a series of small sculptures that you've called incomplete drawings of decolonization and these are small sculptures made of bound materials that include aspen and other types of wood sinew porcupine quills other stuff could you Maybe pick one and we'll get an image of it from manpodcast.com and talk us through how it illustrates decolonization or how you intended for it to illustrate decolonization.
1: When I was thinking about illustrating decolonization and I came up with that action of binding, I started thinking about what it was like, what would I be decolonizing and how would I visualize that, that progression? I've always been really interested in Sol LeWitt's work and his series of Incomplete Cubes, and I started thinking about his work as kind of the basis of kind of modern sculpture. You know, anytime you're in a sculpture class, usually you start with a cube, and usually you learn about Sol LeWitt, and so it it really has become like the building block of modern sculpture, and... You know I'm not I don't have access to solo, so I thought okay what would I use in its stand-in or what what is comparable to that idea and of course I love coming back to Ikea because it's local <laughs> it's easy but it's also it speaks to the way that natives use materials in a modern way I truly believe because you know we use wood because it's there. We use, you know, we use dye from certain grasses because that was what was local. Um, we traded for different things, and you started using beads. And so, IKEA is something that is always in the periphery of my space in some way, and so it made sense that that would be kind of the stand-in for that that Western piece that needed to be decolonized. And so I started thinking about like the recipe of what that decolonization would be and that's when I start I love aspen I love aspen trees that is I love the way it looks I think it's a beautiful tree I love the way the leaves flutter in the wind and kind of dance and one of the the best things and kind of the most important parts of aspen is that aspen is never just one tree alone it's always connected you know it's always in a stand of a group of other trees and their root systems are all interconnected So what seemingly seems like, you know, separate trees kind of all together, they're actually all one organism working together. And I love that idea. And so anytime I use wood, I try to use aspen because I just love it as a metaphor. I just love everything about it. And so I knew I was going to be using aspen. And in addition to the IKEA remnant and the aspen, there are casts of my hands that are in that are part of the sculpture. And so because I felt like I needed to have, you know, literally some skin in there. So I needed to be part of this this progression. And so, you know, with those three pieces kind of sandwiched together, I then wrap the sinew around it and that's what, you know, has the binding. Pro- so most of these, I think all of the sculptures have the sinew wrapping around it, but this piece in particular Which is called one slash it keeps going has a big metal c-clamp on it as well a a galvanized silver c-clamp and that's kind of holding it up and kind of tipping it a little bit so it's kind of not at a right up it's kind of at a diagonal and so i loved the idea of kind of introducing like an industrial way not just like kind of seemingly indigenous like sinew binding but also, like, like we really mean it. We're using a big C-clamp, you know? <laughs> and so, because that's the thing is, like, are there, like, indigenous materials and non, or is anything I use a, a native material, you know? And so, I, I, I'm always kind of going back and forth with playing with those definitions. And so, I love the idea of finding a C-clamp. And somehow, it took me a long time to find the perfect one, but I did. And then I also wanted to show the the result of that decolonization. And that's where the porcupine quills come out. And so they're sticking out of the IKEA remnant, pointing directly kind of out. You can't really touch them because they're still very prickly. They're not bent or kind of laid down like in traditional quill work. They're they're out to get you.
0: They look spiky.
1: Yes, they're very spiky. And and somewhat dangerous, so you wouldn't want to like fall on it or anything.
0: Art shippers must love you.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's one thing. I'd never made such fragile sculptures before. And that's a whole lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so that's so that's how all of the materials are kind of put together and how I visually made it. And yeah, I think this one it, it's not only my favorite piece. Piece because of the metal C clamp, but it was also I think the first one that I came up a t- with a title for, and I know I wanted to make a nod to the way that Sol Lewitt titled his pieces, and so there was usually a number referring to like the number of kind of pieces of the cube, but for mine it's the number of like IKEA pieces that are used in each piece. <laughs> so this is one IKEA piece, so that's why it's one slash. And then it keeps going. Like I started thinking about, you know, I, like I like I tend to, I think about, you know, kind of the, my experiences growing up. And I started thinking about like the way that my grandmother would speak to me and how it wasn't necessarily the way other people's grandmothers spoke to them. <laughs> she was, you know, I mean, of course I loved her and she was kind and like knowledgeable about so much, but sometimes she would get frustrated because, you know, she grew up Speaking Navajo, growing up in that culture fully, I was an urban native asking too many Western questions. (laughs) And so sometimes she would get frustrated and just like give me like short answers about different things. So that's why it's so all of the titles speak to things that I imagine her if she was to describe these objects and she was like frustrated with you about answering you, this is the way she would respond. (laughs) It's very specific. (laughs) So that's why, and so, you know, it's just like, she would just say like, it keeps going. And like, there's one that's like, make it right. And another one is the way it was told. And I feel like that one she would always tell me because she would always say, that's just the way it is. Or that's the way I was told, you know? And so, um, yeah, all of the titles kind of speak to to that.
0: Finally, given the newest ways in which right-wing European Americans are trying to extend white supremacy by requiring schools in some states to teach only about white greatness, I wanted to ask you a bit about your undergraduate experience, which you referenced a moment ago. You went to Dartmouth and you double majored in Native American studies and studio art. How did The Native American studies half of your double major inform what became your career.
1: I mean, I think it's everything. You know, growing up as a Native person, I heard stories. I was always interested in history, but it wasn't part of my curriculum in any way in my schooling. You know, and I think one of the best kind of educations I had was when we would travel with my dad to native art markets, and we would go to different powwows and dance. And so I got to understand, like, the difference in, you know, beadworks or designs that people would use on their outfits or within their art, and the different way, you know, different people would use, you know, make pottery or or do different things like that, you know, the different designs. And so that was one kind of education that I had. And then when I went to Dartmouth, and I started learning about specific histories i was enthralled because because that's not something that that we necessarily you know know automatically like i didn't know you know about all the different wars that happened and the treaties and the relationships of of tribes to themselves and to each other and you know to the alliances that that were that were formed and all of those things and so i was just i've always been enthralled in that You know, when I was at Yale, I took I think I was the first graduate student from the art school to ever take a Yale law course. I took federal Indian law and, you know, I found it absolutely fascinating to learn even more technical information about kind of tribal relationships and about rights and about how, you know, how things were formed, whether it be, you know, tribal enrollment or the process of like voting rights or land rights and all of these different things like that. And I think that has only made me more interested in, in being on top of kind of current events within Indian country, but also making sure that I'm aware of the different places that the information is coming from because it's not, you know, just like any media sources, like things are not always the way you think they are. And, you know, depending on who you're hearing from, like, it may be an environmental group, but they're actually not talking to any natives about a specific issue. And they've just decided to take on something on their own. But when you actually talk to the tribe, they want it this way, you know, and so I don't know it just it has really informed, I think, everything about kind of my current practice in life. When talking about the way that people are trying to form education within the United States and kind of almost erase histories, one way that I've tried to do that in my professional teaching life is that I'm the head of foundations at the university I teach at. And I, you know, when thinking about forming the curriculum, You know, this isn't an art history course. It's a studio course. So I wanted to kind of push away from using the traditional examples of what you expect when you take an intro to studio art course. You know, when talking about, you know, specific compositions or something like that, you know, we don't always have to look at, you know, George Surratt or, you know, Cezanne or anything like that. We could look at McLean Thomas and, you know, Candy Wiley instead. And so I decided that my goal (laughs) is to use 100 percent examples of artists of color in all of the foundation's curriculum. And it's not because I, you know, I'm not I'm talking about it right now on this podcast, but I don't advertise that here, but I want it just to be. And I want that to be the way people learn within our courses that that it's an ex- just it's part of of you know as they're learning about color theory, we look at these artists and they just happen to be artists of color, and so it's not a big deal, and I think that you know it is subversive in many ways, but it's also you know trying you know I want to create that new norm i I want. It to be just so naturally integrated into the way our students learn, and it's you know sometimes people ask like, well, do students say something or are, are they questioning it? And it's like no, they don't even notice it if you don't talk about it. <laughs> like they just take it as what you know part of the art experience, and that's that's really exciting. But I think that is one thing as an educator that I'm really trying to change, and I, right now. We're at around, you know, 75% artists of color in our examples. And so over the next few years, we'll hit 100, I'm sure. Anna Sukalarkis, thanks very much. Thank you so much for having me.
0: The Museum of Fine Arts Houston is proud to announce the opening of the new galleries for Art of the Islamic Worlds. The galleries display the entire MFAH collection of Islamic art, enhanced by the Hussain Afshar collection, an exquisite selection of Persian masterworks. See historic paintings, ceramics, precious metalware, finely woven silk fabrics, and carpets. Learn more at mfah.org slash Islamic Worlds. As the Princeton University Art Museum constructs a new building, set to open in 2024, More than 100 works of American art from its collection are traveling the country in the exhibition Object Lessons in American Art, on view at the Georgia Museum of Art at the University of Georgia through May 14th. Spanning the 18th century to the present, Object Lessons features works of Euro-American, African-American, and Native American art, and illustrates how fresh investigations and contemporary perspectives can inform and enrich its meaning. With these objects, the exhibition asks fundamental questions about artistic significance and how meaning changes across time, place, and context. Visit georgiamuseum.org for more information about the exhibition or visit athensga.com to plan a trip. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents I'll Be Your Mirror, Art and the Digital Screen. Organized by curator Allison Hurst, the exhibition examines the screen's vast impact on art, from 1969 to the present, including more than 60 works by 50 artists. Artists including Corey Archangel, Lynn hirschman Leeson, Hito Steril, and Hassan Alahi examine screen culture through a broad range of media, such as paintings, sculpture, video games, digital art, augmented reality, and video. Screens affect nearly every aspect of life today. Their pervasiveness has bred a 24-7 breaking news cycle, the looming corporate-sponsored virtual reality metaverse, unlimited accessibility and content, and an ease in how ideas and images are distributed, undoubtedly shaping culture in profound ways. The exhibition starts in 1969, the year of the televised Apollo moon landing and the launch of the internet's prototype ARPANET, and continues through the present. I'll be your mirror, art, and the digital screen at the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth through April 30th. Welcome back. Next up, Michael Hartman joins me to discuss historical imaginary at the Hood Museum of Art at Dartmouth College. The exhibition pairs an unfinished study for Emanuel Leutz's Washington Crossing the Delaware with other works to explore how artists have constructed American memory. It's on view through November 11th. Michael Hartman, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. It's great to be here. The Hood is exhibiting an incomplete 1850 study for Emanuel Leutz's Washington Crossing the Delaware paintings. There are three of them. First off, what can we learn about Leutz's final composition from this study?
2: The study itself is only partially painted. At the center, you have George Washington standing in the boat, two figures hoisting the flag behind him. But then all the other figures are only sketched in you really get a sense of how Leutze is trying to compose the scene, where people are being placed, what sort of hierarchies are being created in this incomplete study. And as it is, you can really understand how Leutze is privileging certain histories over others. So for instance, you have George Washington at the center, this recognizable figure. But in the final versions of Washington Crossing the Delaware, you also have other figures who are in the boat. You have a Scottish immigrant, for instance, you have an African-American who is or who is using oars. And you have someone who's dressed in Native American clothing, although debatable whether they are actually a Native American. And there's a discussion here about who's included in the boat and who's not. Obviously, women are not included here. But in the past, I think that there's been, let's say, some celebration around this painting and that, well, look, look, who's included in this boat in the foundation of the nation. But the question that I think is more important here is where are people placed in the boat and what sort of hierarchy does that create and perpetuate both in the time that the painting is made into our present moment. So by having these other figures who are only sketched in, who are at the boat's edges, who are much lower than George Washington, the representation here is not at all equitable. The
0: guiding light, if you will, of your show at the hood is that the pictures in the show are and were engaged in forming the idea of the American nation. How does Loitz's Washington Crossing the Delaware and this study contribute to the creation of the idea of the American nation an idea of the American nation? Well,
2: within the context of the study itself, we can see how racial hierarchies are being constructed, right, literally in the hierarchy of who was placed where and how much uh, they are actually completed in the study. And you can see here that this is really the creation and elevation of white supremacy, of whiteness with Washington at the very top of, let's say, this pyramidal structure, a very formalist sort of analysis here of the painting. You know, Loitze is using this scene that he's painting in 1850, right? So something that happened 75 years earlier, something that happened 40 years before he was even born for a very specific purpose, right? He's using the past to look towards a future, a future that is built upon multiple inequalities, economic, gender, racial, social, that are reflected in the laws of the United States, uh, laws that are initially written and formed by people like Washington or Jefferson, and continue throughout this period, and continue in many ways up to the present moment. So there's a lot that I think can be gained by looking at these historical images and just asking questions like, Whose histories are being privileged here? Whose histories are being ignored? What figures are being elevated? What figures aren't present or are maybe secondarily placed? With the idea that, you know, these artworks and in particular, Washington Crossing the Delaware, is an, it's an iconic image. These are iconic paintings and have in many ways shaped and continue to shape, I think, popular understandings about the foundation of the United
0: States. Certainly artists have been quick to grant them power, even if perhaps Americanists less so. Do we see specific racialized types in either the study or in the paintings? So are we seeing the construction of Anglo-Saxon types or other air quote ethnic types or Native Americans or dot, dot, dot? Within the final painting itself,
2: I do think you see some of these physiognomic types uh, being created and perpetuated. You certainly have, let's say, Anglo-Saxonism at the top of the pyramidal structure in Washington crossing the Delaware. You have Washington himself. uh, You have the man who's directly behind him hoisting the flag. They are I think, very differently formed, particularly in their clothing, let's say, than the Scottish immigrant, right, who is working as an oarsman, essentially. And, you know, next to him further in the background, you do have uh, an African-American. You do not know if this black man is free or is enslaved. But you can see the construction of that type here. And I think, you know, it's certainly more apparent in the final version. But you can see Loitza is is working on this
0: in the study as well. I should pause here to note that Leutze painted three versions of, you know, the air quotes, final painting. There is, of course, the painting at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that we all, (laughs) safe to say, know today. There is a version in a private collection that for many years hung in the White House. And a third version was at an art museum in Bremen, Germany, and was destroyed in 1942. So I'm fascinated that even though You and I recognize multiple Leutzes, this this painting or these paintings and others, as having helped form the idea of the American nation, often in ways that construct the nation into Anglo-Saxonism, as you just mentioned, and in other paintings, Christian nationalism. Leutze has not been a popular subject among scholars or museums in recent decades, Uh, comma, why not?
2: I think that is a great question, and I think it's one that is in some ways difficult to answer. On the one hand, I think Loitze and many of his contemporaries or students such as, you know, Albert Bierstadt, Worthington-Whitridge, Eastman Johnson. These are artists who, you know, really the last sort of major scholarship on them was either at the nation's bicentennial in the 1970s, maybe uh, in the early 1990s. So these paintings have really been considered and examined and what they actually portray. I think, in some ways, a perspective that is too literal, rather than thinking about the different sociopolitical ideological currents of the time periods in which they were made and what these paintings were then trying to create and uphold. So for, you know, Leutze, for instance, you know, Washington Crossing the Delaware, it's an image that I think everyone or most everyone has seen at some point, but not thought critically about not thought deeply beyond, you know, who you know, the portrayal of these individuals and what the scene was when Washington crossed the Delaware. I don't think the painting has necessarily been thought about as a painting in the 1850s. That's created in Germany, and then becomes highly popular in the United States, and why this painting was being painted at that moment. And you know what the artist and what the audiences who saw this painting were thinking about when they looked at
0: this scene from 75 years earlier. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that to the extent there have been recent addresses of of some of the works and artists you mentioned, they tend to be from a critical lens of the present looking backward rather than investigating the making and presentation of those paintings within the understandings and ideologies present within those paintings and prominent within their making and presentation. So across this installation, you jump off from the Leutze to point to other ways that U.S. artists have constructed the idea of the American nation. And I think for fields such as, say, French art history or or British art history, these are de rigueur explorations. But I think here in the U.S., Americanists have been rather shyer about such. So let me tee up a couple of the artworks that are in the show, and then I'll get out of the way and let you explain how those artworks have been agents in building or constructing our understandings of the United States. Let me bring up Worthington-Whitridge who painted Near Grey Court, New York from the early to mid 1870s, and th- that's in your collection. You know, there's a number of artists who
2: are featured in this show who were students of Emanuel Leutze, and Worthington-Whitridge is one of these. This is a painting uh, from the early 1870s uh, portraying a landscape in New York. You know, you have, uh, I believe, a farmer on a horse, uh, you know, in a sunlit field. And it's a rather kind of bucolic landscape. And I think that there's many ways that we can think about this painting. But within the context of the exhibition, I think that this painting really is trying to use nostalgia to kind of promote this myth, you know, that the past was a simpler time or that agricultural labor is something that can be looked at and enjoyed without actually thinking about the real hard labor that is agricultural labor, or the, you know, economic precarity, or the, you know, long, hard work, the hours that this person on a horse actually puts into their everyday life to meet their ends. Right. And, you know, if you start thinking about Worthington-Whitridge and, you know, he's based in New York. And who would have purchased this painting. It was probably a wealthy Manhattan merchant who knew nothing about farm labor, who had not worked on a farm. Right. And they hang this in their house. And what do they think about it? What does this wealthy merchant think about this painting, this merchant who never knew uh, the true toils of economic labor? And, you know, kind of by ignoring that reality, I think that in many ways, paintings like this encourage deeper economic stratification between social classes. Right. Because that white farmer on the horse is perceived to live in a sort of simpler, quote unquote, lifestyle, right? I think what you're saying about the cattle is really important here. A painting that's not in the show, but is in the Hood's collection called Tannery and the Catskills from about 1850, I believe, and I think would be work really well in conversation with this. The tannery and that painting would have been abandoned shortly thereafter, because folks in New England didn't want the pollution from tanneries, from cattle necessarily in their region, right? And what you're talking about here with American expansionism and move towards the West certainly plays into this painting, but plays into that painting as well as something that would be removed from the landscape. So that landscape can be preserved and enjoyed uh, primarily as a tourist space for the local folks.
0: It's kind of that not in my backyard sort of feeling. Yeah, that's interesting. We'll have an image of that picture, which was and perhaps still is attributed to William Hart on the show page on manpodcast.com. I think there are two other things in this painting that call us to understand that it's a picture addressing the American nation. One is the entire painting revolves around an American elm tree, which in American painting is almost always a reference to the famous Liberty tree of of Boston yore. And then secondly, cattle, cattle moving toward the mountains, toward what we read or I read as a viewer the West. 19th century viewers, just as we know now, knew of the role cattle played in the European-American expansionist project going back to the colonial era, when the presence of cattle held by colonists moved into fields tended by Native Americans and instigated what is now known as King Philip's War. You also have here a delightful Robert Duncanson, The Stone Bridge from 1851.
2: You know, this painting I brought into the exhibition because Duncanson was a close friend of Whitridge, both Duncanson and Whitridge get their start in Cincinnati. And, you know, Whitridge and Duncanson both travel together along with William Lewis Sontag. And I think that really the comparison between these two paintings, you can see, in my opinion, how someone like Robert Duncanson has influenced Worthington-Whitridge or how kind of those two working together in those early years where they're both uh, establishing their careers. You can see how these two painters are in conversation with one another. And in the Stone Bridge, Robert Duncanson is painting kind of this little winding river, a bridge going across it. And there's many ways that you could interpret this painting. It's painted in 1851. And he's working in Cincinnati, a city that's located on the Ohio River, which divided Northern freedom from Southern slavery. And I think many art historians look at Robert Duckinson's paintings and always try to find a specifically African American perspective in them because he was a black painter. So you could look at this painting and say, you know, this is 1851, one year after the passage of the 1850 Fugitive Slave Act, which required self emancipated enslaved people to be returned if apprehended in a free state. Duncanson was heavily involved in the anti-slavery movement. And there's ways that I think we could look at this painting and think about the artist's political activism and read that into it. But at the same time, those sorts of questions, we don't necessarily or most art historians have not necessarily thought about how race or whiteness, for instance, plays into a painting like Whitridge or plays into a painting like by So I do think it is in some ways unfair to try and always read Duncanson's paintings specifically from that lens of race, race in this instance, typically being African American experience in the United States. I think that there's the equal possibility that Duncanson might have just sought pleasure in painting a landscape. And we cannot rely upon Duncanson to do all of that work for
0: us. In addition to paintings, you have other works here, drawings and other stuff, including two works from around 1840 made by no longer known artisans or artists in the Seminole tribe of Florida. What are they and how do they fit the show's construct? Uh, Whenever I was preparing this exhibition,
2: I collaborated with our Director of Curatorial Affairs and Curator of Indigenous Art, Jamie Powell, to be sure that we were trying to include various narratives and not just center the loitza within the conversation. So on the back wall, we also have, you know, this... Seminole Tribe of Florida beaded shoulder bag that was made roughly 10 years before Leutze's painting. So it is earlier. And we included it partially because there is a bandolier bag included in the final painting, uh, but it's not at all a one to one comparison and we don't make that comparison in the label. But I think what is particularly interesting in one way is that Leutze is painting this scene of US history while living in Germany, right? This is a kind of international conversation. And in the same way, this shoulder bag, or the beaded sash that you were mentioning, uh, are very much internationally informed as well. The beads that are on them would have been made in Europe would have been traded by the woman who made these the shoulder bag, the woman who made the sash. So in the very material formation, these are also international objects uh, in that the glass beads had crossed the Atlantic, had made their way to this woman who had traded for them. At the same time, there's Also a discussion here, I think, about the multiple nations that exist in what is today the United States. The woman who created this bag for a close male relative was thinking about how to help him assert Florida Seminole sovereignty in this period, a period in which the Indian Removal Act was still actively being enforced, which the Florida Seminole were able to resist and stay within their nation, within their homeland. Uh, and at the same time, we're helping people who had been formerly enslaved and had self-emancipated, accepting them into their
0: community. That's interesting in the context of the Loitza and beyond for all kinds of reasons, including that roughly concurrent to the production of the two objects in your show, Robert John Curtis was painting Seminole Chief Osceola, who was then imprisoned in Charleston, um, South Carolina, at Fort Moultrie, a painting that was widely, I mean, spectacularly widely copied not only by Curtis, but by other painters. We can see here Native people, in this case Seminole, representing themselves and their culture, even as to many of us, the dominant representation of Seminole culture comes through European-American-made portraiture, initially made while the subject of that portrait was imprisoned. I want to wrap up with... The Epic of American Civilization, the famous Orozco murals that are at Dartmouth and for which you have many or all of the drawings, and you've included a few of those drawings in the show. Maybe pick one or two of them and relate them to the mural for us and how you think they are contributive to the story you're presenting.
2: So Jose Clemente Orozco was at Dartmouth College in the early 1930s. He was commissioned to paint a large mural cycle, which is in the basement of our Baker library called the Epic of American Civilization, which unfolds over a number of panels. And uh, because of the centrality of Washington in the Loitza painting from the 19th century, I selected a series of sketches by Orozco for his Anglo-America panel, panel 13, which really are in many ways based on or inspired by the image of George Washington. So Orozco in the final mural portrays this rather kind of stern looking school teacher. She's surrounded by these children. There's a schoolhouse in the background. There's a number of figures who all kind of have almost a zombie like appearance. I believe that is. <laughs> a I believe that's a description that comes from uh, Dr. Mary Coffey who teaches here at Dartmouth. And really, you know, Orozco is thinking about how the U.S. education system promotes nationalism by not fully reckoning with the nation's entangled, complicated, and violent settler colonial history. And he does these sketches of Washington and doesn't figure out how to incorporate them into the final scene. So in one of the drawings, you see this kind of floating figure behind the school teacher next to the schoolhouse. In other ones, you just see a sketch of Washington's face. And what Orozco ends up doing is kind of merging George Washington's face with the school teacher. The, the, the school teacher is wearing a dress, by the way. <laughs> yes, yes. As a way to, I think, really criticize, right, the U.S. education system and what it was promoting by not being self-critical, let's say. And he does this in a number of other panels, but I selected these because of how Washington is portrayed and also because I think it makes this exhibition a little bit more local to the Dartmouth community. And we have one other work in the show that does this as well. And it is a wampum belt that was recently given to us by the Mohegan nation on the occasion of Dartmouth repatriating Samson Ockham's papers. Ockham was a citizen of the Mohegan tribe and a Presbyterian cleric who actually went to England and raised the money for Dartmouth College, but was never given the credit that was due. It was always Eliezer Wheelock who was kind of considered the founder of Dartmouth, even though Ockham raised all the funds. And we have developed an ongoing relationship with the Mohegan Nation to rectify this story and tell a more accurate and complete history. And whenever we repatriated Occam's papers to them, they gave us a wampum belt and it shows these figures kind of walking hand in hand. And it really does signify this ongoing relationship between us and between the Mohegan Nation that will be continually revisited to be sure that Dartmouth is upholding our agreement uh, and being honest about our history.
0: The Belt was made by Kaylee Fournier. Michael Hardman, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information.